0: Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of Infection Prevention in Conversation, brought to you by the Journal of Hospital Infection and Infection Prevention in Practice, the journals of the Healthcare Infection Society. I'm Gemma Windsor, Editor-in-Chief of Infection Prevention in Practice and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by my colleagues from the JHI, Jim Gray and Nick Mahida. Jim is the Editor-in-Chief of the JHI and Consultant Microbiologist at Birmingham Women's and Children's Hospital. Nick is an editor of the JHI and consultant microbiologist at Nottingham University Hospitals. Thank you so much for joining me. Each of you have very kindly given me the top papers from uh, the JHI over the past year in 2021, the papers that have really stuck in your mind and have helped impact your practice going forward. The first two I sort of clumped together, if you will, or decided to put first because I think they both have... A sort of relevance th- throughout the COVID nineteen pandemic, but also I think the lessons learnt. So the first paper is one that Jim um, selected uh, by Castro Sanchez et al, and it's the evaluation of personal protective equipment support program for staff during the pandemic in London, and this was published in March of last year. So Jim, would you mind just giving us a brief introduction of the paper,
1: please? Yeah, sure. So hello everybody, and thanks, Gemma, for the for uh, the introduction. Um, this this was a paper that, that really sort of attracted my, my interest because I thought there must be some things in this paper that we can learn as we come out of the, uh, of the pandemic. Uh, and basically this research was done in the early days of the, of the pandemic between April and, and May 2020 in one of the uh, major London teaching hospitals uh, and what the authors described doing was um, identifying a number of people who who had been redeployed from other areas of the trust to assist in clinical areas as PPE helpers. and And I think it was it was quite an interesting concept because it's probably something that we all have in our um, viral hemorrhagic fever guideline. That, that it's a good idea when people are donning their PPE that they're observed doing it. But, of course, that's in the likelihood that you're going to see one patient every few years turning up in, in an AE. and um, but, but this was a very different concept of a hospital that had a large number of people coming in where there were a large number of staff who were being redeployed to, to manage those patients who perhaps weren't familiar with the... Uh, situation in the ward and even just little things like where do you find PPE if you don't normally work in that area. So it seemed like a really nice idea to do this. And, and the authors tried to sort of wrap some research around this in that they applied the sort of com um, principle of looking at capability, opportunity and motivation in um, determining the behaviours of of staff. Now what that meant was that in in terms of capability what they identified as the major issues were the importance of fit testing for respirators, um, the rapidly changing guidance which I think we will all remember fondly at that time when you kind of came to work each day, and there was a different set of guidance that we had to uh, somehow interpret and adopt into local practice. And I, I think they also found, which was perhaps less important, uh, certainly in my my memory, um, consideration of the uh, the different transmission mechanisms as well. So those were the main issues they identified around capability. And then in terms of opportunity, uh, everything was really focused around the difficulties that they perceived that people could have with PPE. And that was difficulty with wearing it, the the lack of comfort, the the need for training and donning and doffing, and getting access to PPE when it was necessary. And then finally, in terms of motivation, they identified things like myths around whether PPE was effective or not, whether necessary or not, um, and other important things, I think, like forgetfulness, so people just genuinely forgetting to put on PPE when, when they knew they should do it, impulsive behaviour, um and then i think something i would probably uh wrap up in in the description of something is optimism bias so i think particularly when people had not done something properly and had kind of got away with it and they hadn't got covered then it the, the temptation was to say well actually i don't need to do this anymore because i've done it once twice and and, and it was okay so those were the the, the sort of challenges that they identified, and this was a project that was carried out over really quite a short time. But, but the PP helpers were redeployed from other areas of the hospital, and they were given three key objectives really, which was to listen to staff concerns, to try to signpost staff to information and to uh, accessing PP when it was necessary and to promote best practice as well. So that was the sort of first stage of it. And then the evaluation which they did, which I think was possibly the weakest part of the paper, was that they, they, they just did a survey where they invited people who were working on the wards that were covered by the project um, to um, submit Um, responses to a number of questions. And in in total, they they got 261 responses, but but they didn't really say how many potential respondents there were. And of those 261, the majority, 177 of them, were were people who had been exposed to a PPE helper. Um, And the other issue, I think, about the survey was that there, there wasn't really any, any sort of control of the quality of it. So there was no, there was no sort of validation of the, of the answers in the survey. But nevertheless, I think the key points about the survey seemed to be strong support that the programme had given people confidence about wearing PPE. And, and I think the thing that was most interesting was that, that the staff groups who reported the most benefit were staff who were either non-clinical or people who were redeployed from other areas to work in those areas. So as I say, I think one of the main issues for me was that there was no objective measurement of the impact of the project. So it was a relatively short-term project and it relied on self-reporting of, of people's experiences. But nevertheless, I thought it was a an interesting paper that might teach us something as we come out of the pandemic where we could consider using similar projects.
0: Yes, Jim, actually, um, having read the paper, I agreed with several of the sort of discussion points that you've already touched on. One of the things I equally thought were really, really interesting was that the staff groups who found the most benefit were those who were redeployed staff and and non-clinical staff. Nick, I was wondering if I could bring you in um, at this point and just get your thoughts really on what you think we can infer from that going forward, what you think that might speak to and, and how we can perhaps um, sort of hone some of our interventions going forward.
2: I mean, I think in terms of the, the PPE, I mean, I think it, it basically shows that uh, <laughs> donning and doffing PPE is a challenge. And, you know, you know, I think getting the steps right for very simple PPE it is it, not easy if you're not routinely doing it in your daily practice, especially when you are changing PPE or you're redeploying staff or you're reorganizing um, your delivery of the healthcare service. I think, that, I think this, this paper really informs the, a really good strategy of delivering an effective way of making sure um, that um, healthcare workers can use PPE properly um, to protect themselves.
0: One of the the things that I took from it, and the authors do actually address this themselves within within their discussion, is the sustainability of such a project. Because obviously, um, at the beginning of the first wave um, in this time period, April, May in 2020, we saw a lot of redeployed clinical and non-clinical staff, which gave these authors a go-to group, if you like, of clinical staff that they used. Um, I'm just wondering, obviously, going forward, that wouldn't be a resource that was such readily available to infection control teams. I'm wondering, Jim, how you think that affects the sustainability of a project such as this?
1: It's a really interesting question, that. And and I, I mean I, I was thinking a lot about us and and you know what we could learn from this project that that we might take forward. And 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 for me, there were there were two, well, maybe even three possible aspects to it. One is just in general the recovery from the pandemic and the fact that in a lot of hospitals we're going to end up having to get a lot busier to meet the backlogs and in some ways I think that threatens kind of creating an environment a bit like the unfamiliarity that people had at the beginning of of the pandemic, when we'll have people coming in, doing, you know, particularly nurses, perhaps um, doing extra shifts, working in areas they're not familiar with, and the, the risk not, not around PPE so much, but just around general infection control, um, that that perhaps it would be nice to have a, a helper there to to help them with that situation. Another area where I thought this could have some useful long-term added value is is when you're dealing with with an outbreak. So the pandemic is is like a massive outbreak. Um, But if you've got a discrete outbreak in your hospital and you need to take measures either to make people improve their infection control or to improve standards of cleanliness or whatever. And particularly bearing in mind what the office reported, that it was the non-clinical staff who, who experienced the benefit from this. I think it raised a question for me, you know, if, if you've got an outbreak that we need to get a lot of extra cleaning for, you know, do we need to give the domestic staff more support than we perhaps would normally do to to make sure they understand what they're doing and to make sure they're doing it properly Uh, and then i guess the final bit which is is probably the most esoteric of the three years is this model of having helpers something that could be used long term i mean one thing that we're testing at the moment is that because we were a bit concerned that during the pandemic a lot of the general hospital maintenance had had sort of slipped um and standards of equivalents were perhaps not being monitored as well as they had been before we, we're actually employing somebody at the moment for a fixed three-month period to um almost work as as a helper in a situation like this by visiting the wards regularly looking at at sort of general standards and, and looking at specific areas and making sure that they're being addressed. So it, it just feels to me like, like there's lots of carrots dangling from this paper, but, but there's just not enough evidence at the moment really in terms of the cost effectiveness, um, let alone clinical effectiveness, that, that would allow you to actually say, yes, give us some money
2: um, to support this. Um, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Jim in that I think, I think it was, it, it's something that it looks like would have been really helpful right at the start of the pandemic when you are when you're at the start of an outbreak and trying to control the situation. Um, but it's very much applicable to outbreaks as they occur in our healthcare environment moving forward. I think this is something that we'll definitely con- consider utilising. Um, for example, if it's an outbreak in a in a more rehabilitation type ward where you're where healthcare workers are not necessarily used to wearing PPE all the time, uh, where it's more rehab, rehabilitation type unit. So I think I think the message I take away from it is, is that really it's an additional component to support training uh, as a process to deliver um, one of the control measures, an important aspect of it, which is the appropriate use of PPE, really.
0: Thanks, Nick. That's a great way to, to round off this first paper. Thank you. So um, the second paper is one that Nick, you suggested, but it ties in, I think, in many themes and in many ways quite nicely with the first one that we've discussed. Um, It's by um, Cham Sedin et al, uh, a group from from Beirut in Lebanon, uh, and it's entitled Detection of Influenza Virus in Air Samples of Patient Rooms. The authors set out with this paper to understand the transmission and dispersal of um, flu A and RSV via um, aerosols in patient areas, in patient rooms, whereby the patient had confirmed flu A and RSV via PCR. Ultimately, um, they didn't detect any environmental RSV, so really the paper ended up focusing on flu A. Um, And what what the authors did was during um, 2017 and 2018, during their flu season, they identified patients with confirmed flu A via PCR, and they enrolled those patients and then went on to perform air sampling in the rooms of those patients, both In close proximity, and that was 30 centimetres from the patient head, and at 2.2 metres from the patient head. They then used um, real-time PCR to detect whether flu A or not was present in those air samples. Where flu A was present, they went on to use a plaque assay to determine whether those um, virions were infectious or not. And essentially, um, the the authors uh, report that 65% of flu A positive patients were what they termed to be emitters. And by that, those were patients with at least one positive air sample. And quite worryingly, 40% of those that were emitters were found to shed virus at greater than two metres from the patient head.
2: I mean, I think that's a great summary, Gemma, thanks. Um, I mean, the other things I wanted to just sort of uh, mention were um, this, the study was actually done in 2017, 2018. So, you know, colleagues across the world were already thinking about aerosols and droplets even before the pandemic um, had started, um, even though it's been published, you know, during the, during the time of the pandemic. Um, I mean, the other thing to, I guess, state is the background to all of this. is Obviously, the WHO guidance, I think, says Is it one metre as the sort of area of highest risk for the healthcare worker uh, for droplet contact? Um, I think the UK guidance um, from Public Health England a few years ago perhaps said about two metres, but it's still much more focused around droplets um, as opposed to sort of aerosols, essentially.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think this, this paper really then does shed light onto the question is, what impact should results that are reported, such as these, have on recommendations for PPE use among healthcare workers?
1: It is interesting because one of the um the sort of themes of papers that that are continuing to to come to the journal um throughout the pandemic that, that relate to research pre-pandemic uh, are about this very subject. And and we've had a number of of papers, not just looking at the, 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 the sort of purely in vitro uh, aspects of, of air sampling, but, but actually looking at rates of infection amongst healthcare workers when they've worn different levels of PPE, when having contact with patients with respiratory illness. And, and, I, and I, can, I can certainly sense that there was a move, as, as Nick sort of said, even before anybody had envisaged we'd have a pandemic, towards people thinking that actually um, airborne transmission of, of respiratory viruses in the hospital is, is more important than we used to. And and I, I think there's, there's been lots of things that probably contributed to that debate, for example, the, the fact that, that many more hospitals have, have access to um Multiplex PCRs and are, are finding mm. respiratory viruses that that previously would have just been labelled as clinically a viral infection. So yeah, I, I mean, I think that sort of going forward, and as we come out of the pandemic, uh, I now especially now that we've got used to wearing a, a level PPE, uh, I I suspect that national guidance in many countries is going to be that for at least parts of the year that healthcare workers. Um, do use PPE both to protect themselves and risk of transmission to colleagues and other patients.
2: It's so really two really key points you mentioned. I thought just to pick out, which is the first one around um, the the fact that um, you know around day one is when most of the cross transmission or or the high sorry the vi- highest viral loads were being detected in this in this uh, study. And we know that there have been some other studies published, as Jim alluded to, where where, when healthcare workers during this pandemic have worn higher levels of PP with respirators, what they've demonstrated is lower number of outbreaks across their hospitals or organizations. So in theory, suggesting that respirators being worn prevents further cross transmission from healthcare worker to patient and patient to healthcare worker. I mean, the, 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 the information in this study is stark in some of the aspects. So 95% of the air samples collected on day one were positive, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you get close to the patient, there is definitely virus aerosolized um, around there. And that rapidly fell on day two um, to 24%. And on day three, that was 8%. Yeah. I
0: thought that was really interesting point, actually, because one of the questions that I was reading thinking about this was that if, if we accept there is going to be a move towards more stringent PPE um, and an acceptance of, a, of an aerosolised route for many of these viruses of transmission, then what impact does that have on our hospital builds? What impact does that have? It affects every aspect of infection control. And actually, very few of us are working with that, within an environment where that could be readily um, sort of the implications of that could be readily kind of brought into practice. As I read through the paper, it made me think, could we actually risk stratify these patients based on the time following arrival, the time symptoms, et cetera? And could that help us to stratify how we could implement placement of these patients, how we could implement PPE use, et cetera? So that was something that had come to my mind as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, sort of leading on from that really and the and the risk stratification, I mean, the things that immediately spring to to my mind are that there are two groups that seem to be particularly high risk one would be patients who are needing high dependency or intensive care and they're actually getting back to your point about buildings they're they're, they're the patient groups are probably least likely to be in any sort of segregated environment um and and that, that's something i think we do need to think about very carefully. And then the other group, which I think would be really interesting to think about in more detail, are are immunocompromised people that that probably shed more virus for for much longer. And and, certainly for many years, the journal's been publishing um, outbreak reports of respiratory viruses and bone marrow transplant units and things that have dragged on for weeks, if not months because you just get this constant sort of patient to healthcare worker back to another patient transmission that goes on for a long time. Um, and you know some of this sort of experience, I think, could help break routes of transmission.
2: I mean, I guess there's a balance also to be struck, isn't there? I mean, I was discussing with some clinical colleagues about single rooms and the use of single rooms in, in clinical environments. And there is an impact on staffing of how you deliver care if you have every person in a single room Mm -hmm. um, ensuring that they're monitored and cared for in an appropriate manner both nursing care and all all the other aspects so there are not only physical costs of building um, and uh, building with the right sort of infrastructure but there's also sort of ongoing costs of delivering um, care in that sort of um, manner Um, I mean I guess you know I have visited a few A&E or emergency departments. And I guess most of them are open plan um, to allow that care to be delivered um, uh, to, to patients. And I guess that is probably one of the highest risk areas where you're admitting a whole cohort mixture of patients. Um, some may have respiratory illness, some may be immunocompromised, some may have all different backgrounds. Um, and so that is a really high risk environment. And I think I think we do need to think about is there another mitigators strategy around this? So is it, do we need to ventilate or ensure excellent mechanical ventilation um, in these buildings? Um, and, and I think that's something I think we'll need to consider. And then whether there are certain very high risk groups, some, as you say, risk stratification, are coughing, sneezing, clearly have a respiratory illness. Perhaps they need to be housed in a, in a single room with a lobby. Yeah, I was just going to support you on that, Nick. A lot of the
1: the guidance in the UK, at least, seems to be around we want single rooms for inpatient patient care. But I think one of the things that's really taught us in the pandemic is that actually it's the outpatient waiting areas, the emergency department, things like that, that that have never been designed to prevent the transmission of airborne infections. They're, they're designed to to get people through a system as quickly as possible in large numbers. And and, uh, and we just don't have the ability at the moment to segregate people. Um, uh, and, and therefore we've probably got to look at secondary measures like ventilation, et cetera.
0: I think one of the key things is as well, when you see cross transmission in acute medical areas in A&E, that's particularly bad because those patients seed every ward in the hospital. And I remember even many, many years ago, looking at some PIIs for C. diff with an educational supervisor that I worked with at the time, Mike Weinbrand. And we traced many of them back to acute medical admissions units. And they were actually rather than we ended up focusing on, well, I suppose it depends whether the chicken or egg came first, but we ended up focusing on basically too far down the pathway of patient care once they actually got to their destination ward. And many of these transmission events probably were occurring in the acute medical arena. One question I'd just like to put to you both or one thought put to you both that kind of, I think, um, comes out of both of these first two papers that we've talked about. Do you think that the debate on droplet versus aerosol, do you think the evolving guidance early on in the pandemic that was set against the backdrop of the media reporting about lack of PPE nationally has ultimately undermined clinicians' trust in infection control? Do you think it's left any any sort of damaging ongoing relationships between frontline clinicians, if you will, and IPC? Um,
1: I can only speak for for, for my hospital, but I think that, you know, we went through uh, a few rocky weeks, particularly at the time when there did seem to be a correlation between the guidance that was coming out nationally about stepping down some of the initial PPE recommendations, and the stories in the press about shortages of of PPE. Um, And I think at that stage, people were were not trusting us. And certainly I can remember consultants sort of contacting me and saying, can you show me the evidence why our trust has changed our procedure this week? And, you know, nothing would satisfy them other than to to show them the, the, the national Guidance that that are changed, but but I think I think overall for me, um, I I think pandemic has probably improved um, relations with between clinicians and infection control because I think we've come to understand each other a lot more and and respect the challenges that we both uh, face in delivering what we want to, to achieve. So I, I, I think overall it's been
2: positive at the end of it, but there were some rocky times in the middle.
0: Nick, do you have anything to add to that from your experience?
2: No, I can only echo what Jim said, which is, yeah, there were some really challenging, uh, challenging times. I mean, I could recall colleagues in my hospital buying their own respirators um, and wanting to use those and those are really challenging discussions to have uh, when the national guidance said one thing when colleagues wanted to use respirators um, but I think yes I think as time has evolved and the guidance has changed all the time and everyone has seen the amount of research and the amount of information that has come out of this pandemic I think everyone I think really ac- accepts that it has dramatically change the world change healthcare delivery and obviously it's changed infection control hugely and I think what's really positive I think is to really put infection control back into the focus I think there was a time I felt um, before the pandemic some things were taken for granted in terms of infection control you know we've done it all the you know people would reflect that we've done it all the time what is there to do apart from hand washing but I think I think people now recognize that there is a much more multifaceted approach to infection control. um, And I think it's really renewed the focus on it, which is, I think, is a positive thing.
0: And we'll move on now to the third paper, which changes focus completely. And it's a paper by Kinavi et al. Entitled Methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus transmission among healthcare workers, patients and the environment in a large acute hospital and non-outbreak conditions investigated using whole genome sequencing. So essentially the authors um, set out um, in this paper to investigate the role of MRSA colonisation of healthcare workers, of patients and also within the environment on ongoing transmission in a non-outbreak setting. They um, wanted to investigate transmission events occurring between healthcare workers, patients and the environment on an ongoing basis outside of an outbreak. They essentially found that healthcare workers and patients were Colonized with MRSA, and there was a total of 155 MRSA isolates recovered, both from clinical isolates and screening isolates and environmental isolates. And that the the transmission events and the relationships of transmission between those groups um, of patients and staff were extremely complex. Um, and I think, sort of in my mind, provided some concrete evidence that no one solution would ever fit this problem and that you know that's why bundle approaches are are what we've ended up with um so essentially i'm just going to come to you this this was published at at the end of 2021 i'm supposed to ask you why you nominated this paper what you thought it added to what we already know about mrsa transmission um, and what conclusions if any you could draw from this paper going forward how it might influence your practice where you work
1: i think i chose the paper really for two main reasons. One is because I think it was a a nice paper describing a a really thorough piece of work that had been done with some really complex analysis by by the team. Um, But but the other thing of course is that that all of us uh, I think have been stimulated to think again about MRSA with the publication of the uh, revised uh, HIS joint uh, MRSA guidelines. And you've got to think about everything now in the context of, of the pandemic and, and what's happened. And uh, I mean, there were, there were two things really that, that struck me from that. One is, you know, I think we've got to be prepared for the possibility that we might have a group of staff who have been wearing PPE, particularly affecting their noses and mouths for a couple of years now and if at any stage we step down from that is that actually going to mean that instead of there being sort of like a trickle of people acquiring MRSA um that, that there's a possibility that, that a lot more staff could quickly become MRSA positive and, and I think what this study shows is that, that when that happens there's the possibility that that can then turn into not just healthcare worker to patient transmission but actually into an outbreak and then kind of completely um sort of the the opposite end of the, the spectrum in terms of considerations the other thing I thought was because one of the recommendations that the authors make in the discussion of this paper was that 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 periodic screening of patients and and staff for for MRSA might be considered and just in terms of the fact that that staff have got very used to um, being screened for SARS-CoV-2 um, does raise a question actually uh, as to whether staff might be more amenable to being screened for other pathogens if there was a clinical need um, than we might have thought three or four years ago when I think you know we would have had the unions and everybody else saying no you just can't do that
0: Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting point, actually. So the authors report um, in this paper, 4.6% of the healthcare workers that they screened were were colonised with MRSA, Um, usually in a transient manner, because actually there was three points in this paper whereby people were screened. So the vast majority um, were transiently colonised. Only one of the healthcare workers was persistently colonised. Um, so again, I thought that yeah was really interesting. And the other thing, as you've already mentioned, was the fact that the one of the conclusion points of the authors was to consider staff screening, which almost is in um sort of not direct contrast but is in somewhat contrast with what the guidelines actually suggest which is that healthcare worker screening should not be regularly undertaken um, unless other methods of controlling an outbreak have have not worked or epidemiological data suggests healthcare worker transmission so i did think that was interesting having read the guidelines relatively recently for something else and then having read this those messages were, were a little bit at odds one of the things I wanted to discuss, one of the, the take-home messages that, that struck me as interesting was that this study used nasal and oral sampling techniques only to detect colonisation of staff and, and patients. And they found that um, 60% of healthcare workers and 45% of patients were only colonised in the oral cavity, so it would be totally missed if you'd screened for them um, in other anatomical sites. What is What do you take from that? I mean, do you include oral screening as part of your MRSA screening strategy where you work, Nick? Do you find that it's a, a site that's that's usually positive when other areas aren't?
2: Yeah, it's that's a, that's a really good point. And, I, and it's something I had to think about uh, a few years ago, actually, um, because um, we were seeing a, a significant number of... Um, staph infections in our um, uh, itu um following people coming in with neurosurgical pathology um, whether that was trauma or uh, uh, interventions <clears throat> and i'm not i'm not sure we ever solved that problem but i know from our mrsa screening on the intensive care unit that we do find we screen for throat nose groin um in our itu whereas in the um Outside intensive care, we screen just nose and perineum. And I know from the intensive care unit, we have found isolated throat carriage with MRSA. Um, it's not a huge number. I think I think our number is around 5% um, of isolated throat carriage. Uh, but there is a proportion, I think, who do have just throat carriage.
0: And, and Jim?
1: Yeah, um, I don't think the authors actually described how the swabs were collected, whether they were self-collected swabs or, or yeah. collected by somebody else. It
0: was referenced, it was referenced from another paper, the, the actual methodology of the samples being taken, yeah. I believe.
1: But but certainly the experience that we've had is that if you leave people to do their own swabs and you let them do no swabs only, I don't think they do them properly. And I can certainly remember one um cluster of MRSA. That we had in a in a complex area of the hospital where we we asked staff to screen themselves, and nobody tested positive, and we went back and had an infection control nurse do the swabbing, and I, I think we found about three staff who were positive on the on the second round of swabbing, and and that was amongst a relatively small cohort because it was a small um, complex care area at the hospital. So I, I do wonder whether it. You know, if if people are using self-collected swabs, it's you get a more reliable swab from the oral cavity than you do from a a nose swab.
0: Again, that's probably something that would have been influenced during the pandemic, as we've all got more and more used to getting proper, you know, getting right back to the faucets to be able to do a proper lateral flow test.
2: I was going to reflect back to Jim about the um, taking the throat swabs, and I guess healthcare workers being more amenable to taking swabs, and I accept that I think people are more. amenable and understand and accept that having said that um as you know that the lateral flow reporting for healthcare workers is not particularly great um so i think i think psychologically human beings unless there is a very good reason you're doing something and often it's for yourself um if you could explain to someone that we saw being afraid to protect you from getting an MRSA infection, then you can understand that. I think asking the healthcare worker to do it on a regular basis, outside an outbreak setting, it is 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 not easy. I don't think would be my view.
1: Yeah, I mean it's interesting because we we have always, um, because because we're a hospital with a low incidence of MRSA, we have always had a pretty low threshold for for staff screening. Mm-hmm. And we probably do about three or four staff screening exercises per year. Um, which you know, at the moment, for example, we we're doing one on our plastic surgery ward because we've had a single case. But but when we do that, we we nearly always pick up um four or five, six members of staff who are positive. But usually it's only one member of staff who's actually carrying the Strain that we're concerned about from the patient or patients, so so I think there's nothing particularly surprising to me in the in the Kinevey paper that that there is a background prevalence of MRSA, which you know it, again wouldn't surprise me that it's often quite short lived. I, I think for me the, the paper raises a lot more questions than than it. Answers really, and I, I think maybe some of their recommendations are, are, are perhaps based on their local prevalence and it may depend on the, the design of the hospital. I suspect it's quite an old hospital with with nightingale type wards. Um, but but you know. They not not only the the financial implications, but the, the 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 sort of demands on staff to expect them to to be screened regularly, I, I think is something that, that would need an awful lot more evidence to support it. But nevertheless, I think it, there are some interesting points in the in the study, and one of them was that whilst the overall um rate of emerseans in, in healthcare workers was four point six percent, it did vary quite a lot from. Sampling time to sampling time. I think at one point it was over 10%. Mm. Um, So, you know, I I think it does give us some information that might help us locally decide whether there might be something at a particular point in time in your hospital that should prompt you to uh, consider staff screening earlier.
0: The last thing that I just wanted to bring up from this paper that gave me a bit of a scare was that eight of the 110 MRSA isolates that they found that were proven to be MECA positive were both cefoxitin and oxacillin sensitive phenotypically. So, would be completely missed in, in my lab, and I'm guessing most labs um, in the NHS. I just wonder where this leaves us really. You know, if we're missing nearly 10% of MECA confirmed MRSA isolates, how do we? get around that do we need to be using molecular sequencing for all of our but then how are we picking them up you know it's that was just one last thing that um that kind of i wanted to just discuss about whether would we be alone in missing those nick would you be missing those
2: we'd definitely be missing those i would say (laughs) we'd be run we run a phenotypic screen test. we used to run a, a molecular um a molecular diagnostic panel for patients admitted to ITU. So they would get a molecular uh, uh, screening swab, basically. And we used to pick up a few mek positive sort of results, Saph aureus, a positive. When we'd screen them, phenotypically, the result was negative. Now, I don't know that's because it wasn't expressing its resistance mechanism or not, but... We never subsequently had any problems in those patients with MRSA either, so I'm not entirely sure of the answer to that question.
1: Well, I, I think I think that last point is, is just the, the the point for me is it's it's not so much in terms of sort of screening exercises, but 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 I think what what we've noticed in in the last six to nine months is that we seem to be seeing. Um, quite a few really serious staph aureus infections coming in mm-hmm. from the community and a much higher proportion of those are actually MRSA than, than we've ever seen before. Um, but, but I think the one thing this has made me change my thoughts on is that if you see somebody coming in with a really serious staph aureus infection, um, even if it seems to be methicillin sensitive, we that's possibly the group that I would at the moment think about just checking their the, yeah. the, the macaon before uh, happily giving them fluconazole as monotherapy.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Throughout the pandemic, we've had periods of incidents where we've seen really quite perceived noticeable increase of community acquired both Igas and MSSA and MRSA infection, um, particularly after the the national restrictions were lifting after the first wave. Um, we saw a huge surge, we're perceived to see a huge surge in, in community-acquired gram-positive infection, um, really serious um, infection, so it's, it's interesting. I'll, I'll wrap up the uh, the MRSA paper there, and we'll, we'll move on to our fourth paper, which is a, a lovely paper by Halstead et al., looking at Pseudomonas aeruginosa infection in augmented care, the molecular ecology and transmission dynamics in four large UK hospitals. Jim, would you be happy just to summarise this paper for us?
1: Um, I'll do my best. It was a very um, detailed paper, and uh, I'm just really going to sort of... Um, Give the highlights of it, really. Um, I mean, the first thing to note is that that actually the collection of the material for this paper was done quite some time ago, it was 2014. Um, But but what the authors did was that they they went through a process over a relatively short time period of 16 weeks Of sampling a large number of water outlets from augmented care areas in four hospitals across the country. And during the same period, they they collected clinical isolates from those areas as well, and then undertook whole genome sequencing all of the isolates and tried to correlate the water isolates with the clinical isolates in, in, the, in the same unit. And the striking things really in terms of results were that, first of all, um, none of the four hospitals uh, had no pseudomonas in the water, but the water outlet positivity rates varied from less than 1% up to um, 16% in, in one of the hospitals. Uh, And what the authors did was that they then sort of assessed the possibility of transmission events um, based on phylogenetic distancing and epidemiological links um, between the clinical isolates and and the water isolates and and defined events as either unrelated or in some way possibly related, be that possible, probable, or, or definite. And basically in three of the four hospitals, they found at least possible transmission between water outlets and patients over this relatively short period of time. Um, but in the hospital with the highest rate of, of tap colonisation, that was the only hospital where there was very clear Evidence of transmission. In other words, the the isolates from the water isolates were indistinguishable from the uh, from the clinical isolates. So, I think it was a it was a nice piece of science. It, it's it's one of many papers actually we've published on on water outlets dealing not just with pseudomonas aeruginosa but but with other negative bacteria over the last year or two Um, and I think as we come out of the pandemic this is going to be an area that's of real interest to infection control is is the uh, microbiological safety of the hospital water.
0: I mean one of the take-home messages I sort of thought when I read this was how varied the epidemiology was Mm -hmm. across the four different units Mm -hmm. and how actually you couldn't take one take home message from each of those and apply it to your own unit because you didn't know, you know, exactly where your unit. So I think one of the the key things for me was to have an in-depth understanding of your local area, your local hospital. Um, and then through that develop an understanding of what could be the transmission events. I mean, was that your take home? How, how did you interpret? Uh,
2: very much so. I think uh, that was exactly what I was thinking, what you've just uh, alluded to. I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff that happens in the background that's not it's impossible to cover everything in the paper you know for example what is it uh, thermostatic mixer valve maintenance records you know what are do they have uh, plastic piping or metal piping um, you know what is the competency and training of the cleaners in the hospitals that are being considered you know those are just three things but there are many 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 facets to controlling um, uh, (laughs) gram-negative bacteria related to water uh, outlets Um, yeah and and that's just the that's just the supply of the water Um, and
1: i I think the authors themselves did mention that they, they didn't look at other possible sources like the the drains as well so You know, I I think this is, despite the number of papers that we're seeing being published at at the moment, I think we're still in very early days of understanding exactly what the link with water outlets and and just the general hand wash basins and and infections in in hospitals are.
0: I mean, one of the other important limitations that the authors recognise throughout the paper is that they didn't screen patients for pseudomonas colonization on admission to ICU. So also the directionality of transmission, it's difficult for them to make any firm conclusions about that. And one of the things that I thought was interesting and and again, raised some questions but the authors went on within within their discussion to suggest that a series of interventions which included new taps, use of filters, improved cleaning and more appropriate wastewater disposal. Through introduction of those within one of the trusts that they investigated they were able to reduce transmission of pseudomonas by 50 percent. So it goes to show that this is a problem with you know multiple solutions and these solutions can be very effective. However again it made me think about the sustainability particularly point-of-use filters, for example. Um, And I just wondered, have you ever had any issues on your ICU? What kind of bundle interventions have you, how have you kind of in your own institution, have you ever had to tackle problems such as this?
1: Um, Yes, we have. Um, When we opened our refurbished neonatal intensive care unit, probably about 12 years ago now, um, we had um, automatic taps, and literally within probably four or six weeks of those being installed we started to see um uncontrolled spread of pseudomonas erosinosa around the unit and we tried everything um, to deal with it apart from using point of use filters um we, we took taps off the wall and sampled them at various points and 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 basically um we we could find pseudomonas well behind the the tap so it wasn't simply uh, a matter with the with the outlet and the the flow straighteners around the outlet it it went much further back than that And, and we were only able to solve that problem with with point of use filters and they remain on on the taps to this day um and they create problems themselves because they get in the way of the sensor for the automatic tap, which means that people end up then touching the outside of the filter to try and get the tap to uh, to come on. And, and so the, the filters themselves become contaminated with, with gram-negative bacteria over time. It was and, and remains a problem for us. And, and we haven't yet been convinced that there's a solution with a better tap out there.
2: Yeah, I mean, exactly the same experience as Jim, really, that we have struggled with the control of pseudomonas on our neonatal unit. And to date, point of care use filters are used um, on the unit. I mean, there's a variety of filters now that are available. There's three monthly, two monthly, monthly filters. You know, there's a balance of how long you leave them on. Can you get to the sink and do your activities with the filter there? Does that increase the splash risk? So there are many challenges Uh, Still uh, around that. And yeah, they create problems with the flow of water and then possible back contamination. Um, We are lucky, perhaps, um, in the process of trying to redesign a new neonatal intensive care unit. So we're going through a process really of thinking. And I know the GHI has published some stuff around this, which is how many taps do you need, Mm. really? What sorts of taps do you need a thermostatic mixer valve? definitively on a neonatal intensive care unit um, who is going to be washing their hands where do these taps get positioned do you position them maybe further away from the clinical areas could you use more uh, other methods of cleaning hands such as wipes and Mm -hmm. uh, aspects around that so that is something we are thinking about and trying to consider to try and mitigate the risk of water because water is a risk yeah,
0: could you go completely
2: waterless? Follow the Dutch model? Yes, um, that that is a thought, but I, I'm not sure that's that easy. So, but yeah, that is a thought.
1: Yeah, I was just going to quickly say, and in, in base of that, I mean, the, the problem I think we we have is that that going waterless in the initial unit, when people often wear gloves, is is perhaps more difficult than it is mm. in in other areas because. You, know, you need somewhere to wash your hands after taking gloves off. Um, but then that raises the question, really, do we need to wear gloves as often as we do, which is another very topical area at the moment.
0: I'm going to move on to our last um, two papers, actually, but... On one topic, essentially. So uh, the first one is by Pugnet et al. Pneumocystis exhalation by infants, developing pneumocystis primary infection, putative infection sources in hospitals and the community. The second is um, by Nevaza et al. A proposal for pragmatic investigation of possible clonal clusters of pneumocystis pneumoniae papers. Essentially, I think many of the authors actually overlap across the two papers. I found these really interesting and actually learned quite a lot about um, transmission of pneumocystis and the primary reservoir of pneumocystis. So thanks, Nick, for bringing them to my attention.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally, I think, I think we're ending on the theme we started, which is about aerosols. True. Um, and, you, you know, you can aerosol viruses, you can aerosolize bacteria, and this is showing that potentially you can aerosolize fungi. Um, So there is a lot of cross-transmission that can happen by aerosols. I think that's the fundamental point uh, I thought uh, was useful about this paper. I mean, from a personal perspective, I think what is interesting about these papers is we're seeing an increasing number of PCP outbreaks across the world. um, And um, the GHI has published a number of those, um, especially relating around transplantation um, and renal transplants. And the question is, is it because of we are doing more transplants, we are using more immunosuppressive therapies, or is there something around better detection? You know, we have alternative methods like B2D-glucan in the serum to look for, um, and those sorts of tests are becoming more available. Um, PCR diagnostics are getting easier. Multiplex PCRs where you can run a whole panel which will look for various sort of Mm non-culturable bacteria from respiratory tract. And I guess I still think there's much that remains unknown about PCP, basically, you know, in terms of what is the exact reservoir, you know, is it humans, is it animals, is it the environment?
0: Yeah. I mean, this, this paper, this, the the Pugnet et al. paper introduced me to that whole concept, which I'm embarrassed to say I just was completely unaware of that the primary reservoir that they sort of sold that paper as a proof of concept that the, um, The infants under 12 months and their primary PCP infection is likely to be the primary reservoir of ongoing PCP in immunocompromised patients, um, which I thought was really interesting and and sheds a whole new light on infection control aspects, particularly in children's hospitals. Um, Jim, I'll come to you in a moment, but um, I mean... Was that one of the reasons you put this forward, Nick?
2: It was- yeah, because we just don't know. We just don't know yeah. enough about it, and you know, there's still co- questions around colonization versus infection. Mm-hmm. You know, there's questions around when you get a few cases in a particular group. You know, is it an outbreak? What are the typing methodologies available? Are they routinely available to us? Um, what is the exact transmission routes? You know, in for example, waiting rooms. I guess the question is, what do you do when you get a positive case? And, and that's,
0: that's what the second paper, so the, the, the Naviza et al, was a, a just a short paper, but actually a really, really nice summary of how to go about establishing whether you have a PCP outbreak or not, in essence. I may have oversimplified that, but they, they put forward a cluster that they dealt with um, and a pragmatic investigation model, essentially, and they used typing to find that actually um, these, these were not related and they just stood down all precautions immediately and saved themselves a lot of time and hassle. A lot of um, epidemiological investigation did not occur because they just and they proposed that going forward. And um, would you agree with that?
2: I mean, so we treat PCP as an alert organism in our organisation. Interesting. So any positive PCP, we do a look back um, for the period of they were admitted or when they became symptomatic and seeing who their contacts were. And then thinking about what we do with those. So was that on an award with immunosuppressed patients? Um, and, and it's not easy, it takes time and it's time consuming. I mean, we've had two out two large outbreaks in our organization. One was related to renal transplantation, which was only terminated with mass prophylaxis across the whole group um, over a period of six months. And the what other
0: patient group was that, Nick?
2: Renal transplantation. Okay um and that was about seven years ago and then we've reached more recently about three four years ago before the covid pandemic had an outbreak in an oncology group of patients um, who were having either chemotherapies that left them lymphopenic or were receiving very high dose steroids as part of their chemotherapy regime um and so um as part of those measures, we'd already talked about putting it. So when patients came into our oncology waiting area, they'd already be wearing masks. Um, there were already, we'd introduced sort of uh, those HEPA filtration air units into those areas because we had demonstrated that if you swabbed the extract vents um, in those areas, you could find PCP or get PCP positive PCR results um, from that. So suggesting that were, it was being aerosolized in that, in that area.
0: Did you ever do any typing yourself during the investigation of these outbreaks?
2: That's really difficult. Yeah. So I think for the renal transplantation, we were lucky that Public Health England supported us with some typing and um, we were able to get some typing that we showed there were identical um, strains. we were not able to do that for the oncology. Um, because these two process.
0: papers are both in France. And one of the things that I thought when I was reading them, were: what is the availability? I, it, I, it's not something that was on my radar, how readily available and what the turnaround time um, f- for those would be in order to actually, if you're waiting on that to decide, have I got an outbreak here? And you know, every day more patients are coming into that clinical area and sitting and waiting. How long can you wait before you decide? And Jim, in, in terms of a paediatric point of view, because of obviously your experience with paediatric microbiology, what, what's your take on
1: this? I think it's, it's really difficult because we treat quite a lot of patients for suspected PCP, but we very, very, very rarely confirm a diagnosis PCP. And, and I think that's partly because of the difficulty in actually getting decent specimens from, from children. And then I guess we've got to think about at least the early view on transmissibility of SARS-CoV-2 from children, where, where everybody felt it wasn't very, really very transmissible for, from children. Um, and whilst that is is almost certainly not true of the, of the later variants, um, it, it does raise this question that, that, you know, most, I think most of the children who are at risk of PCP are, are very young. And it's just how transmissible PCP would be in that group, because I'm not sure how much they they would actually shed. Um, Certainly, um, maybe about three years ago, we were concerned that we saw two unusual fungal infections, which actually turned out to be unrelated on our um, relatively new um, hematology ward, and, and we did very, very extensive investigation of the ventilation system because we were concerned, you know that there could be a problem there. Um, and we did not find any evidence of, of PCP in, anywhere in, in the system at all. So um, I just have some real questions as to as to how transmissible PCP would be from child to child.
0: I mean, in, interestingly, actually, despite the the, the um, one of the papers, you know, stating itself as a proof of principle, actually, there was relatively few patients in whom they were able to detect PCP in the air, um, in whom uh, in children in whom had been positive by a PCR in their NPA um, specimens, um, and in only one case from recollection, they actually found the same, confirmed the genotype to be the same between the patient and the air specimen but nevertheless I think it's it's definitely given me some food for thought I mean one of the things that you suggested Nick about are we overlooking this as an alert organism it's made me think possibly I def, you know have in the past and whether it's something to rethink within my own department so that's really useful thank you so in the interest of time there I think we'll have to to wrap it up but I want to thank you both very very much and um, for taking part today thank you very much again to Nick and Jim for joining me on our podcast today I hope you found it interesting and got a view from the other side, the thoughts of our editors who handle the papers. If you want to find out more about how to get involved with the Healthcare Infection Society or our journal specifically, please go to his.org.uk. If you're on Twitter, please follow us at JHIEditor and at underscore open to get updates on further podcasts and papers as they're published by the journals. Finally, Please support us by liking and subscribing to Infection Prevention in Conversation via your usual podcast channels. And please join us again next time when we'll be talking about infection prevention and control risks of water and wastewater drains in augmented care.